Today in, uh, in Acts 5, we learn a hard truth. <laughs> and I'm just going to tell you up front, sort of, sort of give you the, the big picture statement, the big idea, so you know what this hard truth is. It's in the pages of Acts 4 and 5 here, and we're going we're to just kind of learn what the story says and go along and pick up the pieces along the way so that, so that when we get to the end, it will become clear what we mean when we say this. This is the big idea today. The big idea is in the study notes there on the back of your worship guide, there are two blanks there for you to fill in. It says this, when it comes to your witness, when it comes to your witness, sin is the break and Christ-like suffering is the gas. It's sort of an counterintuitive kind of truth. It's not the kind of thing where you say, hey, who wants to come and suffer for Jesus? La, yeah, sign me up. I mean, that's not, that's not how you feel about that kind of thing. That's why it's a hard truth. That's why it's a hard truth for us to learn. And we'll see it in the pages of Acts here through the first disciples. When it comes to your witness, sin is the break, and Christ-like suffering is the gas. And, and this may be why our, our, our lack of willingness to suffer for the cause of the gospel, our lack of, of thinking about the gospel mission as more important and a bigger picture than us, it may be why our life isn't as effective for the cause of Christ as we think it should be. Or, or we read in these pages of Acts, we, we see the awesome things that go on here, and we, we, we say, why isn't that happening in my life and, and in this church and, and in our community? We, we, we wrestle with that. It may be why. It may be why we aren't as effective as we think we should be or, or the gospel seems to be here in Acts. Now, we're not talking today about, about whether God's mission is dependent upon you. <laughs> Let's just say that up front before we go any further. God's mission is going to go forward. His mission is going to go forward whether or not you're a part of it. Because God's glory is the goal for him. And that's going to happen. That's going to happen whether you think so or not. Whether you like it or not. Whether you're a part of that or not, it's going to happen. So don't misunderstand. What we're saying today is that you're part of the mission. Your effectiveness as a piece of the Great Commission. And your level of involvement in it. And enjoyment of it. Is dependent upon this truth. Because God's church is going to achieve its purpose. God's mission will be accomplished. He will receive glory. One of the things that's a major truth here in Acts is that the church is an unstoppable force. Even Satan, as we'll see, cannot stop it. But when it comes to your part, when it comes to my part, when it comes to our witness, sin is the brakes and Christ-like suffering is the gas. Let's look at how this works as we study through Acts 4 and 5 here. There are two basic parts we're going to talk about today. Uh, the first one that's in your outline there at the very uh, the front part there, A, says they had everything in common except for Ananias and Sapphira. We're going to look at that part first, and then we'll look at the second section where it talks about many signs and wonders being done, uh, but the Jewish leaders didn't really like that, of course. So let's see how that works. Start off in Acts 4, verse 32. That's where we'll jump in. Acts 4, verse 32. It says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Press pause. 
just that little section there, that first phrase. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. If you're a circler or an underliner, you may want to underline that phrase, of one heart and soul. I came across that, and, and, and the first few times I just sort of glossed over it and thought, okay, yeah, okay, they're unified, great. But, but that's huge in this passage. That is an awesome thing to say. They were of one heart and soul. They all had the same goals in mind. It says the full number of them, all of them, were of one heart and soul. It wasn't like there were people out in left field sort of doing their own thing on their own little personal mission or vendetta. It says they were all on the same page. John Wesley says their loves, their hopes, and their passions joined. It's a cool way to describe it. If you want to know why God doesn't accomplish what you think He should or what you expect Him to in your lives or in our churches, it may be because sin is clogging up the system for you. It may be because your personal witness is hindered by something that you haven't yet learned, that you're not really listening to Him about. Well, not this church. Things were on full force. The accelerator pedal was on. They were on the same mission. One commentator says it this way about their mission. What joined them was not simply a common affiliation to the church. This is in your notes there. I put this quote there. What joined them was not simply a common affiliation to the church. In other words, my last name being such and such, or me going to this denomination, or being a part of this church, or sitting in this pew each week, we all know has nothing to do with whether or not we were actually on the mission. You know, I, I come across these obituaries sometimes, I think. You know, somebody, such and such a person says, he was of the blank tradition of faith, or, or she was a, you know, this or that, or a Methodist, or a Baptist, or a Presbyterian, or, or part of the Christian church. I want mine to say, he was a part of the mission. That's what he's calling us to. Ultimately, that's far, far more important than the other ways that we talk about how we're a part of this church or not. What joined them was not simply a common affiliation to the church. There was a spiritual unity and a unity of passionate commitment to a mission. That's what kept them together. Keep reading, verse 32. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Hey, this thing right here, it's mine, not yours. Nobody said that. Nobody said that. This thing over here, mine, not yours. Nobody even said that. They were... On the same mission. Instead of, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. They understood that everything was God's. They understood the truth that everything was God's. And don't miss this. Everything was given to them for the sake of the mission. It wasn't merely about enjoying this thing per se. Though we do enjoy things. But things are given to us for the purpose of God's glory. Just like our whole life is. And they understood that clearly. It says, though, that right there in verse 32, they had everything in common. Just a little side note for the record. Uh, This is not a form of communism uh, for two reasons. Uh, There are others, but these are two easy ones. Uh, It was not imposed or forced. Uh, They didn't have to do that to be a part of the mission. Uh, We'll see that later on. And also, they retained personal property rights. We'll see that later on in the text. So, just a little sidelight for the the political people. Uh, Verse 33, move on. And with great power, 
the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power, great grace, those two phrases there. This verse 33 is a bit of a weird one. It's sort of sandwiched in between. It talks about the common goods of the people in both the front and ending parts of this section. And sort of sandwiched in between is this verse 33. It sort of proves the case that their personal goods were actually tools for ministry and mission. Sandwiched between all these verses about sharing personal property and selling lands or houses to make money to give away is this weird verse about evangelism that sort of seems out of place, except that it shows the results of their giving. It shows the results of their generosity. Luke is, in fact, he's putting it here on purpose. He's saying, generosity, Weird verse, generosity. What's the thing about this weird verse? You're supposed to catch that because it feels out of place. It's called an interpolation for the nerds. Interpolation. I-N-T-E-R-polation. Look that up later if you want. So verse 34. Luke continues to describe the community in general terms. He says, there was not a needy person among them. How cool is that? There was not a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. And then he gives an example, verse 36. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. By the way, many think this is how he got his name, because he was generous with his material goods. That's how they got that they might have named him that in the first place. So Joseph, who was called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This foreigner from another place was a part of the first church in Jerusalem. And he, he, he gave it all to the apostles to divvy out as need be. By the way, that model is, is what we talk about when we why we talk about how we give to to the church. In fact, we don't really give to, we give through the church. So, I, I come across a verse like this, where, where Barnabas is an example of, of generously giving of himself for the mission, and, 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 I, and I think, yes, this is what it looks like. I mean, the inside of me goes, go Barnabas. I mean, that's sacrificial living. That's what happens when a Christian community is sold out to the larger mission of Christ in the world and not just our little world. You see, you are not as important as the mission. Not one of us is nearly as important as the mission. Whatever suffering or great things go on in your life, whatever you experience, everything up to this point that's brought you to be who you are today is for the mission. And is meaningful because of the mission. If you don't have a personal vision for the Great Commission in your life, then you're suffering. You're suffering from a lack of of intimate knowledge of what the cross of Christ really means. We'll talk about that later on. We'll come back to that. So Barnabas gives away his stuff. And and this is what what happens when a Christian community says, says to itself, I love Jesus so much. And I love seeing people's lives transformed so much that I want to help fund that work and meet the needs of people. And so, and so Barnabas loves Christ so much and loves seeing people transformed by him so much that he says, I, I can do with less stuff. I can do with fewer things. Because the mission is more important than those things. 
the cause of God's glory in the world is of infinite importance compared to my things. So that's what Barnabas says. Mission became greater than material goods. And that's what we see here in the the early church. Mission became greater than material goods. The problem happens when we go upside down with that, Romans 1. So, let's move on. Verse 1 in chapter 5 is the opposite of Barnabas. The beginning of our our sermon today was in Luke 4 to set up the contrast for chapter 5, where we see that sin is what disrupts the mission. Sin is what puts the brakes on personal witness. And God doesn't take kindly to that. We'll see that here. Look at verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and and with his wife's knowledge, in other words, they were in it together, he kept back for himself, note those words, kept back, we'll come back to that, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. That word used for kept back here means to put aside for oneself in a secret and dishonest way. It's sort of a rare word. It's an uncommon word. Uh, We don't see it a lot in the New Testament. It is used in the Hebrew Old Testament, which was translated into Greek. It's used into the Greek Septuagint. In Joshua 7, in a passage that talks about how Achan, Achan kept back some of the spoils that belonged to God. And so Luke is using this word on purpose. It's kind of a rare word to say, remember what, what, what happened in the Old Testament with Achan. <laughs> he's, he's, he's noting that it's like that. He kept back some of the spoils that were supposed to go to God. So it's a great example, if you want to write this down, of the principle that Scripture interprets Scripture. Part of how we know what, what, what Luke is talking about is because of what we see in Joshua. Keeping back the spoils that were supposed to go to God. And here's the sin, here's the problem, here's the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira. They made it sound like it was all for God. They kept it back, but made it sound like it was all for God. The lying was, was the sin, not the fact that they didn't bring all the money from the sale. So it was a lie of hypocrisy, of passing themselves off as something that they were not. I've got this in your notes, I think, here. Uh, one commentator says it this way. Their outward sin was lying about how much they were giving to the church. But the deeper, more devastating sin was their spiritual hypocrisy that was based on selfishness. In other words, the mission was not the goal for their selling of the property. They'd watched this scene with Barnabas and said, Oh, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Barnabas is a pretty well-liked guy, I think. What do you think we do something like that? We'll make it look like, but not really. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did here. The mission was not their goal in selling the piece of property. Their own external goodness in front of everybody else was their goal. I mean, this is early churchianity. Self-righteous, whitewashed tomb, recognition was their goal. That was their goal, but they didn't even achieve that because God made an example of them. And Peter caught him on it, verse 3. Look at this. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? That's a contrast to 431 where it tells us that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And here's a contrast to that. Ananias is filled with Satan's lies, and Peter knows it, and he catches him on it. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit 
and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? In other words, it was his to keep and do with what he wanted to do. That's the private property thing there. So keep reading. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. God takes seriously the church's mission, and sin cannot stop it. You see, God will accomplish his mission. The question is whether you will be a part of it. Ananias and Sapphira didn't really care about the mission of the church. They were not of the same heart and soul like it said in the beginning of our passage. They just wanted to look good in front of everybody else. And so they were really after their own glory. They were really after their own glory. And it's their sin that puts the brakes on that witness. It's easy, it's easy to look at somebody like that in the Bible and say, well, yeah, of course they were after their own glory. No, duh. Of course God should have struck him down. How often, how often functionally have we been Ananias and Sapphira and mercifully been spared what we deserve when the reality of the circumstances is we have stolen, we have attempted to steal glory from him by how we act, by how we speak, So God doesn't take kindly to that, and he used this as an example to show that the mission is more important than any Ananias or Sapphira or Scott Wakefield or any of us. <laughs> Verse 6, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Uh-oh, here we go again. Verse 8, Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. He gave her an opportunity. He gave her an out. She could have said, well, actually, here's what we did. I'm sorry. But she didn't. She said yes for so much. Verse 9. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And understandably, verse 11, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This was a fear that God will do what he did with Ananias and Sapphira. At least immediately for them, I'm sure it felt like that. It was a fear that, that God doesn't take kindly to sharing glory that only he deserves. And this is a story of sin putting the brakes on this couple's witness, quite literally. Now, now mercifully, God doesn't always do this. And, and for us, I don't expect that any of us are going to walk out the doors and keel over. But God could, and he would be just in doing it, if we don't know him as Lord and Savior. He takes his ministries and his mission so seriously that he wanted everyone to be a part of it and enjoy what it looked like. So he made an example of Ananias and Sapphira. Well, from there, the church continues to grow, and, and this fear 
was something that continued to motivate the church in a strange way. And many signs and wonders were done. But of course, the Jewish leaders didn't like it. Let's look at verse 12 here. Verses 12 to 16 are sort of a summary that Luke gives of what was going on in the church in order to set up the next section. He's describing here why in verse 17 and following that we'll look at in just a second. He's describing here why the Sadducees are sort of up in arms and they begin to persecute the Christians with greater force. So persecution is coming, so keep that in mind as we're reading verses 12 to 16 because it sets up the response and the opposition. It says this, verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So many, they don't even count them anymore. They couldn't. Verse 15. Multitudes of men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least maybe his shadow might fall on some of them. They believed even a shadow could could cure. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. It wasn't just Jerusalem, it was people around who were starting to hear of this movement. The people around Jerusalem were gathered, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So clearly, the apostles' ministry was succeeding. It was, it was fruitful. It was, it was doing what it was supposed to do. But verse 17 starts to get ugly. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, That is the party of the Sadducees. Remember from last week, they were the ruling party in the Sanhedrin. So the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and they put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this Life. It was going to start to get ugly. Persecution was coming. And, and there they are in jail. And an angel of the Lord gives them explicit instructions. God told me to tell you to openly defy them, <laughs> is what this angel is basically saying. He's saying, even though it's illegal for you to preach the gospel, go and do it anyway. In fact, step it up a notch and go to their temple, meet him in the morning and start preaching right then and there in their own sacred space. So they do it. Verse 21. That's what they do. When they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. They were, they were waiting at the front door when the high priest and the others were ready to start the day. Now think of the emotions that they're feeling. The first followers of Christ here. They have seen thousands come to faith in Christ They had just seen Ananias and Sapphira made an example of. And now an angel of the Lord comes and frees them from prison and tells them that God said to get back in the game and to start preaching the gospel. At this point, the followers of Christ are like, yes, sir, let's do it. Absolutely. So at daybreak, it says, when the temple doors open, they're waiting for the doors to open, bold and ready to roll. So when the high priest came, And those who are with him, this is verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked 
and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Uh Uh-oh. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. At this point, these Jewish leaders are beginning to think, Our plans of stopping this movement have not been enough. Our warning has not been enough, and they're going to begin to increase the opposition, and it's beginning to get uglier here. Beginning to get a little bit uglier. So verse 27. When they had brought them in, when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you are. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29. Peter and the apostles answered. You could just replace that word answered with preached, because that's what he does here. Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. He just preaches the gospel. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now those are fighting words to the Jewish leaders. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. It's going to get ugly. But, verse 34, before it does, insert a little rational calm from one of the Sanhedrin. His name is Gamaliel. A little wisdom from a Pharisee. It says this, verse 34, But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And when he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. And then he gives two examples from their own history of movements that rose and then failed. And he says this, verse 36, For before these days Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. He didn't know how wise his words were. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And then it says this. When they had called in the apostles... They beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The Jewish leaders were done playing games. There was no release with a warning as they had experienced before. There was no angelic deliverance. God didn't show up and miraculously take them out of the situation. They were in the middle of an ugly situation with his Jewish leaders turning up the heat, starting with the serious stuff, 
outright physical persecution. For these, for, for these apostles, for these first followers of Christ, it was time. It was time to suffer for the faith. In verse 40 where it says that they, they beat them. This was the usual warning of the 39 lashes that they would give. History tells us that more than one man died from 39 lashes as a warning. So, so think about this. These first apostles, these first leaders of the church, on a mission to proclaim God's glory in Jesus Christ. Think about what's going on here. The blood is running down their backs. And they're hearing these voices tell them, don't you dare speak the name of Jesus. Don't you dare go out and speak the name of Jesus. As the blood is going down their backs, and they're being told, don't you dare go out there and proclaim Jesus as Lord. And this is their response. Verse 41. They left the presence of the council. Look at this word, rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced. I imagine them there on their knees, being whipped with straps that that tore the flesh off of their backs, with tears running down their face in that circumstance, thinking to themselves with every lash, Lord Jesus, I love you more and more with every stripe. That's ministry. That's the mission is bigger than you. Your presence in these pews and the book you're holding is because countless people have gone before ready to suffer, worthy of being called to ministry that matters and a life that counts because it's about something bigger and more important than you getting glory but that you're a part of the mission where God gets glory. It says every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease. They didn't stop teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The crazy truth of this journey of following Christ, it is this. Redeemed sinners are used by Him to accomplish His glory. Redeemed sinners are used by Him to carry out the work. It it just might be that your own sufferings, that your own hardships are exactly what God is using to teach you to love Him like never before. It just might be that your own sufferings and hardship are exactly what God is using to teach you to love Him like never before.
Fighting a fight is all 